and welcome to the Ethics in Marketing podcast. I'm Mikhail Mizgin, and joining me today is Sidri Perot, a professor in marketing specializing in consumer psychology and applied ethics. The topic of our conversation is gendered marketing, its evolutionary origins, how it can both benefit and harm consumers and brands, the ethical challenges it presents, and ways for brands to navigate them. And now to the conversation. Hi, Sylvie. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, before we delve uh, into our conversation, could you tell us about yourself and your work in marketing and ethics? Yes. Uh, well, so I'm an associate professor of marketing at TBS Education in France. And I'm also an affiliated researcher at the IST, the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse, uh, which is an interdisciplinary research center. And I conduct research in consumer psychology and ethics uh, to better understand, uh, well, the deep roots of our gendered consumption choices um, and our relationship with technology and the ethical um, implications of this type of uh, consumption. I'm really looking forward to understanding the deep roots today. And today we're going to talk about gendered marketing. So why don't we start with the definition of gendered marketing and maybe you could also give uh, give us some examples of it. Yes, well, so gendered marketing, uh, it's uh, based on the uh, segmentation of uh, men and women by brands. Um, so consumers are um, targeted differently based on their gender. Uh, well, it's actually they are based on sex, and we'll see that's the issue. Huh? It's uh, not based on their gender, uh, but so really, it's uh, this binary uh, vision of uh, of, uh, of gender. Uh, so either men or women, and so they are targeted uh, so differently sometimes for the same product. Um, so there are there are indeed many examples in different product categories, uh, such as in cars. Uh, we have the example of the Fiat 500 that is sometimes marketed uh, as 100% feminine in some of their websites. So not the official one, but there are some Fiat uh, uh, local websites uh, that uh, really target women. Uh, but we also have many examples in fashion, hygiene, or even in the food industry. Um, so in hygiene, for example, you have the examples of toothpaste. Uh, toothpaste products for men, like Signal White for men. Um, there are also uh, products like cover phones, uh, targeting specifically men or women. Uh, and of course, the toy sector, uh, it's also very gendered and has been the target of many criticisms. So we might talk about that later on. Um, so as you can see, like a gendered segmentation seems natural for certain products. Like if you think about underwear, designed to fit body shapes uh, or vitamins for to fight uh, menopause signs or, or prostate cancer issues, it's, uh, it might make sense, of course, uh, but it may seem surprising for other products. Uh, so, so for some products, it actually triggered backlashes. Uh, so there are some very well-known examples like the big for her, the pen, uh, the pen big for her, what? It was simply violet or pink, and it was a bit smaller uh, to fit women's hands uh, because women, on average, have smaller hands than men. Or uh, Doritos, uh, 
attempt to launch because they didn't launch the product and because of the backlash. Uh, they wanted to launch these uh, lady-friendly chips uh, in smaller packages uh, with quieter uh, chips to eat like a lady, of course, because women don't want to make noise when they eat. Uh, so, so, well, these examples triggered lots of backlashes on social media. Um, and it happens when brands uh, push gendered marketing too far, uh, especially in the current climate of inclusivity, non-binary identities, gender fluidity. Mm -hmm. So uh, it seems like there is a wide range of products affected by gendered marketing, products that you don't usually think of in uh, from, from a gender perspective normally, like a pen or a mug. So uh, why is this trend persistent? Uh, why, why do we see companies using it even with products uh, that at, at the first glance seems to have nothing to do with gender? Yeah, well, that's an excellent question. And that's actually the question that we asked in our research. And the answer is because it works. <laughs> uh, well, companies would not sell products, you know, if uh, it doesn't work, uh, at least for some products. Uh, when the signal is uh, not too strong, when it's too strong, it might uh, backlash. Um, if you think about the, the movie Barbie, for example, it is considered as a feminist movie and it's still a very gendered movie with lots of pink and blue. And as you, as we all know, uh, it worked uh, very well. And so, um, so why does it work? Well, because people like uh, to signal their gender to their consumption. Uh, not everyone, but uh, some, some consumers. But even, even when you don't want to signal your gender and you want to signal a gender-neutral uh, signal, it's still a signal that you want to, uh, to send. Um, so in the case of, of women, even if they have much more agency and even if they want to signal that they are powerful and independent, like in the movie Barbie, uh, some women still want to signal a feminine gender or a masculine gender or a gender neutral gender, or we'll see like it's, it's on the continuum. Um, and so this can be explained uh, by the fact that consumers will use the products that they own uh, to signal individual characteristics. Um, so these characteristics can be like a more or less uh, gendered physical appearance, um, as well as a more or less gendered personality. And the role of gendered marketing, what it does is that it can uh, reinforce uh, the signal of these characteristics. And so in one of our research, we showed uh, that gendered products can actually enhance uh, the physical attractiveness and desirability of their owners by reinforcing the signal of femininity or masculinity sent to others. So what we, what we argued is that we argued that gendered products, um, they are stimuli that exaggerate the sexually dimorphic characteristics of the human body. Uh, take, for example, a smaller and runner products uh, they are perceived as more feminine because they reflect feminine body and facial features uh, with women having on average uh, smaller bodies and rounder features, uh, rounder physical characteristics, um, rounder shapes, I would say. Uh, but also personality traits uh, that are perceived as more or less feminine, uh, such as agency versus communality. And so by 
reinforcing or exaggerating the signal of gender emitted by these products, they actually increase uh, the perceived sexual dimorphism, which is one of the pillars of physical attractiveness. And it can also increase the imagined gendered personality of their owners. Uh, we showed that in another research on green products. So there is this concept of supernormal stimuli that was used in biology uh, from uh, Tim Bergen. And uh, we used it in our research. By, we argued that gendered products, they act as supernormal stimuli of sexual dimorphism. And these supernormal stimuli in biology, they uh, increase the response, the natural response that we have towards the stimulus. And with bigger stimulus, you have bigger response. Uh, it's like cosmetic surgery that increases women's sexual dimorphism or men's sexual dimorphism. But with women, for example, these are supernormal stimuli, larger breasts, smaller waist to hip ratio, bigger lips, uh, that will increase the response to these uh, stimuli. And we argue that gender products can do the same. This is one explanation. Of course, there are many others, but it can play this role just exaggerating the signal of femininity or masculinity. How conscious are consumers of this, let's say, effect of products that, so do, do they use them uh, as this additional stimuli consciously or is it for the most part uh, unconsciously for them? I think it can be both. I mean, if you think about cosmetic surgery, uh, women do it consciously, right? Uh, but some of them do it unconsciously. They're subconsciously, they might say, well, I will feel better. Um, they don't think that they will do it in order to, or they will not, um, they will not consciously say that it's to increase their physical attractiveness in the eyes of others. But most people will, uh, will do it. Or when they say, for example, I, I like to wear high heels and I do it for myself. Well, usually I ask people, do you wear them when you are at home? Uh, if you do, then you don't do it for others, but you, for yourself, right? Um, so I would say that they do it, uh, that there is, of course, a, a reason why. And some people know the reason deep inside, but maybe they don't want to um, consciously admit it. Makes sense. <laughs> sounds, sounds like typical humans. Yes. Uh, so it seems like... Uh, from this perspective, uh, gendered products benefit consumers, at least from consumers' point of view. Exactly. If, if, they, uh, if they look uh, to increase those uh, stimuli, they want to uh, look more attractive as a certain type of gender. So that, that, that's a benefit for them. Mm -hmm. And it's beneficial for companies, as we can see. Yeah, there are, of course, economic reasons. Uh, if consumers find a benefit marketing will find a benefit too. Uh, so, but it, there's also other reasons. Uh, for example, it can also be sometimes just by uh, the use of gendered marketing. It can be just to simplify consumer choices. Um, for example, when people quickly want to buy a gift for their nephew or niece, let's say, and they go online and they're going to use the term that will enter um, gift for an eight-year-old boy, for example. Uh, and so marketing is like an intelligent algorithm. It learns from our queries and preferences, and that's how it will create segmentation. 
based on gender. So consumers, in a way, are at the origin of gendered marketing. It's based on their conscious or unconscious different preferences, some of them, not all of them, of course. And sometimes gendered marketing is used by companies uh, to attract and encourage certain consumers to buy products that they might otherwise avoid, uh, for example, to protect their gender identity. Um, if you think of the well-known examples of Coca-Cola Zero and Coca-Cola Light uh, that do not exist anymore, uh, they at first they created Coca-Cola Zero after creating Coca-Cola Light to address the resistance of men to consume light products because they were perceived as feminine. Uh, another well-known example is Dr. Pepper's. Their tagline was, it's not for women campaign. Um, it was, the objective was to re reassure men about their masculinity uh, because the product was with less calories. So gendered marketing uh, for companies can make sense in certain contexts uh, when they want to attract consumers to, product, to, to buy products that are not or that are perceived as counter uh, gender atypical. Um, and if you think about eco-friendly products, for example, uh, because eco-friendly products tend to be perceived as more feminine, then gendered marketing is going to try to increase the perceived masculinity of these products uh, in order to increase green consumption among men. And so in that case, is it ethical to use gendered marketing? Well, it might, you know, if you're trying to save the planet or at least participating in uh, fighting climate change. So it can, it can be useful. So it's beneficial for consumers and it's beneficial for companies. So where are the ethical problems coming from? <clears throat> so what are the implications and concerns around gendered marketing? So, well, so there are many, of course. Uh, so in terms of, I mean, the main issue is uh, stereotyping, of course. Uh, so because gendered marketing, the issue is that it's sometimes, not all, always, but sometimes it relies on stereotypical roles of men and women. Uh, for example, if you think of Coca-Cola, when they launched Coca-Cola Zero for men, they used, uh, they had a partnership with James Bond, um, and so it was reinforcing traditional gender roles and expectations. Uh, it was like a man, you know, like they were using this um, superhero, you know, jumping from a helicopter. And so the, the, the use of stereotypes in gendered marketing can limit individual uh, expression and opportunities. This is the biggest concern, particularly the, de the debate uh, with toys and kids. So gendered marketing uh, targeting children may influence their perceptions of gender roles from a very young age, and that could potentially limit their understanding of diversity, equality, but also the role they can play later in life and the choices they will make in terms of career, for example. So this can obviously limit choices and opportunities for individuals. Um, so this could be seen as a discriminatory practice because you imply sometimes with gendered marketing that some products could be used by only um, half of the population and not the other because it reinforces this idea that certain products or activities are only suitable for one gender. Um, 
the other issue with stereotypes is that it can reduce our understanding of gender as a continuum because um, gendered marketing is usually very binary. And so, again, it limits choices in terms of how do I want to express my gender um, on this continuum if I only have two choices, men or women. That's not very uh, broad. There's also the, um, and this is very related, but the issues of values. Um, companies today are expected to show social responsibility and ethical business practices. And, um, and gendered marketing might not be perceived as in line with the values of inclusivity, diversity, or even universalism. Uh, these values are extremely embraced uh, by millennials in particular. And if comp companies using judged marketing not subtly, not wisely, uh, might not be seen as adopting progressive values. And this could lead to uh, reputational damage and, and even loss of trust among consumers. And uh, in, in terms of ethical issues, you also have the issue of pink tax. Uh, that is very debated and eh? this pink tax where so what is it is when products uh, marketed to women are priced higher than equivalent uh, products for men so first it's very hard to show this pink tax because you have to show that the products are absolutely identical uh, which is not always the case the package might be different the promotion for the products might be different And this phenomenon of pin tax is found in sectors where the demand between genders uh, significantly differs, uh, for example, in the fashion industry or cosmetics, because women, are, on average today, it might change, and it's actually changing, but today women still spend more uh, in fashion, clothing, cosmetics, and so they're more willing to spend money on these products. And so it's like... The, the offer and the demand, if the demand is higher, it's like a price ticket for Christmas, a flight ticket for Christmas. It's going to be more ex expensive during Christmas time. Well, if women are more likely to spend more on cosmetics, products targeting women will be more expensive, uh, like flight tickets more ex being more expensive during Christmas. But so the, the debate over the existence of these pink taxes is not settled. We hear a lot about it in the media, but there are some studies suggesting that it's not that clear. So gendered products cost more on average than not gendered, than gender neutral products. Also because they are more costly to produce, like different packaging and to promote uh, more advertising. So factors like, like targeted advertising campaigns and communication strategies may contribute also to these higher price differences between products for men and women. And so even if the these differences in pricing uh, is not voluntary, so the company does not decide beforehand, oh, women are going to pay, pay more for this product. There's no ideology. So the intention is not discriminatory, but the implications, the results, uh, the consequences are discriminatory. So we should still fight against these uh, price differences. What I'm saying is that like gendered marketing, the companies have no ideology behind. They're not saying, oh, we want, you know, women to pay more for our products. Well, they just want to make more money. They don't care, you know, about, about these type of issues. Like we, consumers and um 
and journalists in the media, they uh, always imagine, you know, companies trying to uh, uh, to have this. I they always think that companies are responsible, but at the end of the day, it's driven by consumers' demand. It doesn't mean that we should let it go and let it happen. There are still uh, implications, ethical implications, and we have to be aware of that and fight for it. But the reasons are not what we think they are. As, as long as consumers continue to buy gendered products, uh, gendered marketing will persist. Uh, it's, marketing, I think, it's like a, it's like a, a TikTok feed. Uh, brands offer what we want to buy just as TikTok shows in our feed what we want to see. Uh, it's, it's, it's a mirror. Marketing is a mirror. It's a distorted mirror and oversimplified mirror. But uh, it reflects our desire. Not, it does not reflect the reality of society as it's sometimes claimed. It's, it's a reflection of our desires. And, um, and so marketing and the media in general, they only amplify our inclinations. They're not at the origin of gender differences. So companies don't say, oh, we want to have uh, toys for boys and toys for girls. But gender marketing, because it's a distorted mirror, it's going to accentuate these differences, exaggerate stereotypes, simplify consumer choices uh, to increase profits. And this is where the problem arises, similar to social media algorithms. They have consequences and we have to be aware of these consequences to uh, regulate. We, ha- we still need to regulate it. It shouldn't just be driven by profits, like algorithms should not just be driven by, by profits. Do you think companies have any ethical obligations in this case? Or should they just answer the demand? As you say, there is strong demand, so they answer the demand, but it should be corrected by regulations. Of course, of course, they have some moral obligations and ethical consideration they have to take into account. Um, and 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 it does. There are some regulations in France. For example, there is the RRPP, which is like a, an organization that tracks, for example, deceiving advertising and and sexist adver- sexist ads. And uh, and of course, like AI and algorithms need to be uh, um, regulated, right? It's the same with gendered marketing and marketing in general. Uh, so to, today, and, and so there is a way out. I mean, uh, gendered marketing can still be used in an ethical manner. So today we have this trend uh, toward breaking free from gender binaries. Um, but it's not going to completely eradicate gender, as I said, because consumers still want to signal their gender, whether very feminine or, or lightly feminine or neutral, it's still gender. Uh even if it's so in a more nuanced manner. And some people will still want to signal a very feminine or very masculine signal. Um, So as I said, gender is a continuum. It's not a a binary variable. So, But today, so we see these two trends uh, that seem contradictory in in marketing. We have this trend of femvertising, so which is the, the contraction of feminism and advertising that try to emphasize and communicate a more progressive and modern role of women and and it more diverse bodies too and and gender roles etc and we have gendered marketing that does not look as progressive but 
if we look closely, they are not opposing uh, forces. I- I'm going to take the analogy of the movie Barbie again. It's both this movie is both feminist and very gendered. Um, so these two trends, advertising and, and gender marketing, they are intrinsically linked and they will still coexist. And so today, companies like people who are, we, we tend to go towards a more progressive uh, society, especially the millennials. They embrace diversity, inclusivity, uh, tolerance, universal values. And so they tend to reject this binary view of gender and uh, accepting a gender continuum. So, and so each consumer can position themselves where they wish on, on this continuum. So therefore, there will still be products and communications that resonate with women who reject an overly uh, caricatured femininity, uh, leaning towards non-gendered options. And there will still be brands for women who still want to continue to signal a very feminine uh, signal, uh, femininity. So if you take the example of uh, Kylie Jenner's brand, uh, it's a cosmetic brand. This brand is using very feminine codes, uh, such as the uh, powdering pink and, and bodies with exaggerated sexual dimorphism. And it works very well. And we have also brands not using uh, gender and actually fighting against these very gendered options. Like in France, for example, we have this brand, Juliette Hazegan, that does not use names of flowers, for example, for their perfumes. And uh, that conveys this uh, image of powerful women and very independent and using color codes that are not pink, uh, so one trend does not erase the other. Uh, it's just a new segmentation that will co- coexist, like the role of women in life. Uh, feminism supports the freedom of women to define themselves as they wish. And so gendered marketing today should embrace this diversity of gender. So it's going to be challenging for brands uh, to be ethical while navigating between messages of empowerment and exaggerated femininity, the way to go for them is to offer gender products on a continuum instead of binary uh, variables. So from highly feminine to neutral and highly masculine. If you think of cosmetic skin foundations that come in 50 or 60 different colors, so gender products should avoid this binary choice and let consumers choose the the level of gender they want to signal from highly feminine to uh, to neutral and and highly masculine, and of course, they should not uh, force feminine or masculine products to a specific sex. So they should show both men, women, transgender people using different gender products, and not assign a a specific sex, a specific body, a specific face, a specific gender role to feminine or masculine gender products. They should embrace inclusivity and diversity. So, for example, it's okay to sell um, something pink as long as uh, it doesn't say for women. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And uh, I think that's what uh, Barbie, again, did at one point. They, uh, they, what they did is that they showed, they, they launched new dolls um, for boys, 
both boys and girls, and I showed a, a boy playing with the doll. Of course, there was also backlash in that case from conservatives. Um, so it's hard to, uh, to navigate this new landscape. But yes, they should not assign a specific sex to a specific gender product. Mm -hmm. So do you think that there there is some kind of like uh, a way for uh, companies and marketers to navigate this issue? Like, for example, it's almost like a formula, like you can use pink as long as you don't uh, assign a certain gender group associated with the color. So are there other ways that companies and marketers can navigate this difficult field and... Uh, because they will want they, they they want to use generate marketing because it's profitable it's it's not going away so what other things they need to keep in mind so what other things they have to consider well well as i said uh, they should not uh, well target a specific gender uh, i mean specific sex for their gender uh, for their gender products and uh, and I think that's about it. As long as the communication is inclusive and it's not discriminatory and it does not convey outdated gender roles, it would still work. Yes. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's just, I think it's just a, and they should just avoid these binary choices, having a product for boys and or girls or men or women. It should come, so it's going to be costly, though, like 50 foundation, like 50 colors of for a skin care uh, foundation that's that's more expensive. Um, so they should have broader lines of products. And, and even when it comes with two or three or four different genders, in that case, again, not assigning to a specific sex and be very inclusive in your communication. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it, is, it still it seems to be a pervasive trend that a lot of products uh, say explicitly for women or for men. For example, you mentioned Doritos for ladies or Big Pen for her. Yeah, but they, they didn't launch these products, right? And uh, the Big for her was launched, but then it has it was criticized and uh and so this should be avoided uh this is not recommended to use uh this uh, for example the uh the uh the, the the dr pepper is not for women well they were making fun of it right it was a joke but it was still very discriminatory um and uh people didn't like it and it was very criticized um, so today, it's very dangerous and not recommended um, to write on a product for women, for men, or for her, or for him. We still see it, for example, L'Oreal for men in cosmetics, mm -hmm. for example, right? It's even in, in their name. But here in that case, again, we come back to these products that are perceived as feminine. And here in that case, companies, they want to increase the masculine code make reassuring consumers that the product is is not feminine, so it's not going to um, attack, alter their gender identity. So there have been some research showing that men uh, in uh, in many societies uh, they tend to have a more like a fragile masculinity. I mean, at least it requires more proof than than women to prove their femininity. Um, so on average, women are more open to adopt products traditionally associated with men. 
uh, it's the opposite is not true. It's more complicated for for men to adopt uh, products traditionally associated with women. And so in that case, uh, marketing can still like use like for men or or. But has to be careful, though. They, they they can do that only for products that are really perceived as feminine. Mm-hmm. So there is still a blurry line here. Yes, of course. As always. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's say I have a fragile masculinity and I really want to increase it, sustain and show off. And I, I go to a store and I buy all the stuff that I see that is for men. So is it like consumer trying to consume the products that, you know, uh, will extend those stimuli in me? And right now we see all these products that say for men and I'm buying them. Hypothetically, let's say we have the same set of products, uh, but I don't see the, I don't see for men. Uh, let's say, you know, companies supplied the same uh, this principle of uh, not assigning a certain gender, kind of maintaining uh, the visual, the feel, the feel of the product associated with a certain gender, but they do not assign it to a specific gender. Will it affect how consumers perceive such products? Yeah, well, first, uh, I haven't studied it, but there's some research uh, showing that uh, the products that we consume they send a signal to others, of course, but they also send a signal to ourselves. Okay. Sometimes we want to reassure ourselves. Uh, we want to reassure ourselves about our identity. Uh, not only just gender, for example, if I buy more ethical products, I will perceive myself as more ethical, right? It's the theory of completion. The products that we buy will help us define our identity, uh, both to others and to ourselves. Uh, so consumers find a benefit, right, from these products. Otherwise, they would not buy them. Um, and even products that do not specifically specify that they are for men or women, I think about energy drinks uh, like Monster, Red Bull, they do not say that it's for men, but their communication and the way the products are marketed is very gendered, uh, such as larger cans, you know, and using black colors and some ads with trucks and and monsters and for monster and I mean it's very gendered and it's about having more energy being more powerful so these products do not specifically target men at least they don't say so and both men and women of course uh, buy these products but maybe men a little bit more I guess and so that's why they target men more, right? I guess it's their core target. And then we have seen because this energy drinks uh, sector uh, was growing very quickly, there have been more energy drinks that were targeting women. The cans were smaller and they were using fruits. It was more sweet and with strawberries and raspberries. And, uh, and it was more with health. Uh, the, the benefits were not about power with taurines and, and bulls, but with uh, uh, about health and beauty. And so, again, they do not specifically target women. Both men and women can buy these products. And, of course, men buy these products too. But it's very gendered. So companies still, I mean, use gender in almost all product categories. It During, during uh, the course of our data collection for this uh, 
for this study, we run, I don't know, maybe 40 pretests to find products that were gender neutral and we failed. Even with products that were not targeting specifically men or women, there was no specific colors or specific shapes uh, related to men or women. People assigned gender to any products on a continuum. It was absolutely impossible to find a gender neutral product that was really neutral on the continuum from feminine to masculine. So if you think about even tissues, you think that they're all gender neutral, but people will assign some femininity to this product because, you know, tissues like, you know, they seem more feminine. And and actually, uh, the brand Kleenex launched at one point uh, tissues for men, Kleenex for men, uh, because men have bigger hands. So, I mean, gendered marketing is everywhere. It's not going to disappear. Sometimes it's done subconsciously very subtly they might not even be uh, aware that they are doing it but every part of because that's the way also cognitively that's the way we think about the world it's called the big two uh, the big two dimensions femininity and masculinity communality and agency and all the information we process is uh go through these two dimensions subconsciously even faces, when we see faces. And that com- that's, I think that's where this cognitive bias comes from. We, ha- we are hardwired to process face- faces and we, uh, we categorize faces as men and women, female, masculine signals. And we do that for objects. We do that for products. We do that for everything around us. And that's why I love to, uh, to research gender because gender is everywhere. Mm-hmm. As, as, as you uh, write in your paper, it's basically like evolutionary extension into the marketing where all gendered marketing comes from uh, appealing to this desire of people to find a partner for mating. So basically it extends to all, all uh, aspects of life. Uh, yeah. what, what I'm trying to understand, like if it's coming from this particular evolutionary phenomenon why does it spread into products for kids you know because people don't think about babies at the same time as they think about mating of course it's it's still this is probably the most uh affected uh area of products when it comes to gender marketing yes yeah Yes. So, well, first, like this evolutionary explanation is just one explanation, right? There are many others. Uh, we do not explain the the whole phenomenon. Of course, it's one explanation. And, well, this idea of increasing your mating value is actually true for anyone. Even when you're already in a relationship, you still want to increase your mating value because we are a uh, human beings are very status-driven, and mating value is one dimension of people's status. By increasing your mating value, you increase your status, right? Um, and and one aspect of the mating value is physical attractiveness. It's not the only one. Uh, and this physical and one aspect of this physical attractiveness is sexual dimorphism meaning uh, this, the feminine 
signal that your body and your personality can send. And so that's, so that's why it could explain, you know, even for people who are not really trying to uh, mate, you know, or even for people who are not in a heterosexual, you know, uh, dynamic, you can still want to increase your mating value. Regarding babies and children, uh, the explanation is different, but when you think about parents, there is this new trend now when women are pregnant, when uh, well, couples, they tend to uh, have this uh, gender reveal party now, uh, where they announce the gender of their future baby. And again, this is very surprising considering the trend among uh, especially among uh, millennials, of gender fluidity and, and gender inclusivity. Uh, it's very surprising to see that um, these uh, young parents want to uh, shout <laughs> the gender of their not even born baby to the world. So gender seems to be very important to parents. They want to signal uh, what they, the sex of their baby very early on. You can even see, uh, well, you know, when, you have young parents with their children and they uh, want people to know that they have a girl or, or a boy. And when people are not sure, because sometimes we're, for, with babies, sometimes we see a baby and we're not sure, right, whether it's female or male. And parents can become very upset if people do not succeed in, in uh, distinguishing the sex of their baby. So it seems very important for people to... Uh, to communicate the gender and to reassure themselves, I think, about the gender of their baby. For what reason? I don't know. I haven't studied it. But there is something, again, fundamental here about our identity. And gender is really one of the first. Uh, it's the foundation of our identity. Again, it doesn't have to be female or male. It can be neutral. It can be anything in between. Those people who... More and more now, people want to communicate the fact that some of some of them, that they are gender neutral. But again, this is part of their identity. They do care about this, this non-gender signal. So I think that gender is a foundation. It's a fundamental aspect of our identity. And, uh, and the kids, if you think about kids uh, at school very early on, they're very upset when we ask them, who are you? I'm a boy, I'm a girl, and then their age. And they would get very upset if you tell a boy that they are a girl or the opposite. Uh, it's very important for them and for their identity. Why? There are many, many reasons. Cultural, probably also social pressure. There are many, many reasons. Yeah. Now, as a parent myself, I would definitely like to see more, um, let's say, products that, uh, you know, pink or blue, it doesn't really matter as long as it doesn't uh, assign maybe social roles and uh, creates this kind of like a tunnel for, for those kids that they need to follow a certain path and uh, assign exactly. certain qualities to themselves. Exactly. And, and, and I want to emphasize the fact that even though our research had this evo evolutionary uh, perspective, we do not deny the fact that there are lots of social pressure and cultural inferences. I don't think that we should say that it's one or the other. Uh, they both influence. Uh, now we know that evolution is influenced by culture and culture is influenced by evolution. So, um, But today, yes, uh, gender roles are, are very cultural and they are, of course, and, and marketing is part of culture and it has an influence 
on the choices we make, and uh, children are especially influenced by uh, by this uh, by marketing, especially now we know the, the time they spend on social media, which is very scary. Um, so it's good if they are uh, exposed uh, to different perspectives and uh, different gender roles. Yeah, Silly, thank you so much. Uh, do, do you want to tell uh, uh, my listeners where they can find you? Well, uh, I'm a bit ashamed of it, but I'm not very active on social media. Uh, but yes, I have a LinkedIn account and an X, uh, X Twitter account. Uh, but so I go there a little bit <laughs> just to keep in touch with what's going on. Uh, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, I'm not very active. Yeah, maybe that's a reason to be, uh, that, you know, you should be proud of yourself. <laughs> well, I don't know. The, well, the more I read about social media and surveillance capitalism, you know, like <laughs> the more scared I am. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, as everybody should. Yes, I guess. <laughs> thank you again for the invitation. Yeah. Uh, and I want to thank the audience for listening to conversations about ethical problems in marketing and making our profession better. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That's it for now. And until next time, bye.